Why do we cry? How come love hurts? And what's a happiness researcher doing talking about sadness anyway? My name's Helen Russell. I'm an author, journalist and happiness researcher. And How To Be Sad is a podcast based on my book of the same name, exploring why we get sad, what to do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. In this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life, and each episode I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own story. Welcome to How To Be Sad. My guest today is Yomi Adegoke, an award-winning journalist, columnist for Vogue and The Guardian, and best-selling author of Slay in Your Lane, The Black Girl Bible, written with her best friend, Elizabeth Yuva-Benene. The book is based on interviews with 39 successful black British women, and it's packed full of data, advice and inspiration. In 2020, Yomi and Elizabeth published Loud Black Girls, an anthology of black British writing. As someone who has consistently written about race and racism, Yomi is a guiding voice for many young black women. She's also a source of inspiration, clarity and integrity for everyone else. So Yomi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I sound great when you put it like that. Thank you. <laughs> you are great. I appreciate that. So first off, I guess I want to ask, how are you? How are you in lockdown? How's it been for you? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's been it's been like I assume it has been for everybody very um, up and down. Um, I think with the first lockdown, I was quite focused. I saw it as, um, oh God, I don't want to say something like a, a silver lining because it certainly wasn't. But I guess I'm always so busy that I did try to see a positive in it in the fact that I had more time and I had more downtime to do things. I started painting. I started, I taught myself to sculpt. I was making the most of it. I made a start on a novel. So I was getting all my ju- creative juices flowing. By the second, the novelty had certainly, a novelty that only very few people actually or can afford to see in a situation like a lockdown um, it certainly weren't one off and you know it became more difficult by the third I think just like everyone is I'm absolutely over it it's very hard to see um any remote type of um silver lining in this present state because it just it just feels relentless even though we've got the vaccines and stuff and it feels slightly more like there might you know like the light at the end of the tunnel I just think everyone is just totally browbeaten by it and yeah I certainly am I hear you. I completely hear you there. I, I was interested. I've been kind of following you, your amazingly busy year and by your painting and your sculpting and your, how I'm very interested in culture as a source of support when we're feeling sad. And there's lots of great science around that. How much has that been helpful for you, I wonder? Oh, my gosh, it was it was absolutely integral. And I think that's probably why I'd say in the second and third lockdowns, I've probably taken it harder because I haven't been as connected to my art I haven't painted I haven't sculpted since essentially I think the second no probably since the yeah the end of the first lockdown actually um and I think it's hugely important I think not just because art is very sort of you know expressive and and a way of you know sort of getting your creativity out there I think also just because so much of what we do is I mean for some people obviously for a number of the population creativity is their work and creating and art and sculpting is their job but for me it certainly isn't and I think having the ability to connect with something that went beyond work and something that I was doing purely for pleasure and expression was phenomenal um I also work with this year I was a curator for a initiative called 64 million artists which you know believes that everybody is creative so challenge basically everybody to get involved with um, different 
creative prompts throughout the month of January, a different creative thing every day. And it was a really amazing experience because I feel that their message of the fact that you don't necessarily have to be inverted commas good at art or good at writing or good at poetry to engage. As I as I have an ability within art, I, I think that's there is an expectation that I would do it. But I think what I loved about that initiative was the fact that it's like, no, this is something that everybody should get involved with and it's part of human nature to express. And I think, yeah, it's been for many people, even people that aren't necessarily artistically inclined, a real lifeline during lockdown. I love that. Yeah, the idea of doing it just for the sake of it and there is an inherent value just in that. Exactly. That's really nice. And are you with your mum and your sister right now? I am. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I am with my mum and sister. That's another thing, the family dynamics that end up being... um yeah, resurfacing in these situations. Oh my gosh, resurfacing is definitely the way to put it. I am I am literally nine again. It's been very interesting um, because I live with my sister and my mum, gosh, I mean, we under severe duress came to um, lockdown with us and um, quarantine with us last March. She was for a period, one of those people that kind of thought, oh, you know, I'll just be nipping to and fro. It wasn't until essentially the actual lockdown took place that she started to really understand that coronavirus was a serious thing. So she was just, oh, I'm just going to pop it, pop back from, you the know, pop. she lives like, yeah, pop, you know, pop up the road. And she lives um, 15 minutes from here. So I, you know, my sister's immunocompromised and my mum is over 60. So we were like, you can't just be wandering the streets and, and coming like to and fro. So we were like, just quarantine with us. And she's just never left. <laughs> she's just stayed here for the oh. year, which has been interesting. But yeah, no, it's definitely been... It's, yeah, it's, you know, I, I can honestly say that had I had we not all locked down together, I think it'd have been a much more difficult experience for sure. That's and do you think you've learned stuff about her that you didn't know before? Oh, I learned she's hilarious. I keep saying this, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know how. I don't know if it was lying dormant or because I was like a teenager and so wrapped up in myself, I didn't notice. But like she's actually genuinely like I would say a big source of joy actually during lockdown has been my mum's commentary like I keep I'm I'm like whoever works in television please somebody get her on Gogglebox like her commentary is absolutely second to none and I it's that thing of like I don't know like like she's just very effortlessly funny and me and my sister were always like we watch all these really corny lifetime films and we like constantly make sure we wait for our mum before um we, we turn them on so like we're like literally like crowded around her waiting for her to say something waiting for her commentary because she's really funny so yeah I really I didn't know that before though I honestly don't I think because we spent so much time biting heads when I was like a teenager um and then obviously I've gone on to like you know become an adult and do my own thing like we spent we've always spent a lot of time with each other because we're just a very close-knit family but I just don't think I've been able to observe her in that way so unmoored from I suppose normal life that I have been able to see just how genuinely hilarious she is. That's been like, yeah. honestly fantastic to see. Like it's, she's, cause she was like, everyone knows I'm funny. Everyone at work says I'm funny. I was like, wow, where have I been? <laughs> like, yeah, she's really, she's really something. <laughs> That's so nice. The opportunity to kind of, yeah, reevaluate your parents as adults and peers. Exactly. And, yeah, that's really nice. She's got a sense of humour. <laughs> She sounds brilliant. She should definitely get her own show. You've talked really warmly. I've, I've read some interviews and I've, you know, in your podcast and in your books about your family unit and how tight that was growing up yeah. and almost how maybe that made it harder to leave and to, to leave Croydon and to leave your home and go to university. Can you tell Absolutely. me a little bit about, yeah, how that, how that was for you? And Oh my gosh. It's like, yeah, it's really interesting. I do think I lived a relatively sheltered life, as sheltered a life as you can live within Croydon, to be honest, because yeah, there was stuff happening in my area, especially in the like early to mid noughties, for sure. There was a lot of like knife crime and, and things that, you know, were, were pretty dangerous. However, that being said, I definitely lived 
a pretty sheltered life. Like, you know, I have two sisters who are my best friends. Uh, me and my older sister went to the same secondary school. My mum and dad have always kind of been around. Like, my family were kind of my friends first, if that makes sense. Like, I've always kind of been one of those people that honestly didn't understand when people are like, oh, I just don't get on with my sister. Or, my brother really annoys me to the point where they actually weren't close. I was like, wow, I thought it was just like a kind of given that you were like super close to your siblings and family. It was genuinely something I didn't really realise. So when I went to, and yeah, I guess like I'd spent my whole life in Croydon. You know, Croydon is, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's it's very strange the way that my, as I said, my mum lives 15 minutes up the road. My co-author and best friend Elizabeth lives about 20 minutes away, also in Croydon. She moved to Croydon. When I went to work, which was so far, but not just physically far, like culturally different and that wasn't just in terms of because when I discussed Warwick which I loved that's that's the funny thing about it I actually genuinely loved it I think people assumed the biggest friction was was race and that was definitely a thing for sure I remember when my dad was like I really think you should go to Warwick and I wanted to go to SARS I remember physically crying because I remember thinking like I'm gonna be the only black person there and I'd gone to a school which was quite very strange in terms of like, you know, it, it was, Croydon's an enormous borough. So you had lots of working class kids from estates, um, but then you also had like kids that lived on like the millionaires row and purdy and like lots of different races, but still predominantly white. And that had led to like literal like race wars at, on the playground and stuff. So I was like, oh my God, I don't want to go to a school or sorry, university that's entirely white. But what I think was one of the most difficult things for me to navigate was actually class because I felt that, you know, the well off, I went to uni with Nigerian students that were, you know, quite literally amongst some of the richest people probably in, in the country. So, you know, they were very well off and they were still able to opt into certain areas of culture that, you know, they're playing lacrosse with the same like rich white kids as whatever. It wasn't like, you know, by virtue of us both being Nigerian, there was a there was an understanding there either. So I think class was a big thing. I was really struggling financially. I, I you know, I, but I also was struggling with my studies. So I couldn't get a job um, to kind of pay my way through. So it was just a very tight, difficult situation. And I missed my sisters like insanely and felt very homesick and like just missed the creature comforts of being able to bloody get your hair done up the road. Because I, I like literally grew up up the street of my familial home, uh, just a dozens and dozens of hair shops, dozens of corner shops and shops where they sell like, you know, ethnic food. So I was like, God, I'm in this, not that I can cook, but like I was in this place where all of that was gone and it just really just compounded the sense of alien alienation. So it was difficult. It was very difficult. And I flee home at like any opportunity. But as I said, it was like primarily feeling super broke all the time. I felt super black all the time, but I also felt super broke all the time. There was like, you know, this kind of little small group of minority students that all were weirdly from South London as well. In fact, one of them went to the same school as me. And, you know, I definitely found solace in that. But as I said, I think it was a combination of feeling alienated in a very white organisation, but also an organisation in which like most people went to private school, most people were super well off, most people weren't going on nights out and like counting the pennies in the same way that like me and some of my friends were. And you were studying law at the time. I was. God, can yes. you imagine? Who honestly knows why? <laughs> I have no clue what I was thinking. But, but I've heard you talk about that as well in, in a very interesting way in that you are a lot younger than I am, but the kind of Instagram generation that we do things because we feel that we should and yeah. what they will look like. And often, you know, and same, you know, for all of us that we do things with parental expectations without thinking perhaps whether they're what we want. And it sounds like law was one of those for you. <laughs> Oh my God, absolutely. So with, it's really interesting because I, I think I've said it several times before actually that my parents weren't 
I mean, there was close, I'd say, to like, you know, baby boomer, African hippies as you can get. I mean, they're certainly not hippies, but I think compared to like your average archetypal inverted commas, African parents, like they're they're quite laid back. Like they have two journalists as kids, which is like kind of unheard of. And they didn't ever, like, even in terms of the fact that like, there's been no, when people talk about the whole, like, oh, it's a running joke that, you know, when will you marry? There's a whole pressure on, you know, second generation immigrant kids to get married. My parents really have never been that way. They've, I mean, they've had three daughters and they've just let us do our own thing. So I, I grew up with them wanting me to do well, but they were kind of like, if you want to be a ballerina, go and be the best ballerina you can be. If you want to be a doctor, be the best doctor you can be, but just be great. So when I was like, I want to, especially after my sister had already kind of like taken the initial bullets for like being like, by the way, I want to be a journalist. When I was like, oh, I want to be a journalist, they were very supportive, but I didn't know that until I honestly would say it about my final like maybe penultimate year of university. Prior to that, I had just no idea what I wanted to do. The only thing I knew I was intrinsically and inherently good at was art, but it wasn't my parents that were like, don't do art. It was me because I'd inherited a lot of, I suppose, concerns about finances and money and I wanted to be stable. And I'd gone through certain things that I thought, I don't want to go through this again as an adult. So I was like, gosh, am I going to make money as an artist? Probably not. So um, my parents were like, why don't you be an architect? Could literally thinking that like, because I could draw, I could just draw houses and not, not thinking the technicality. So they're like, why don't you just, just be an architect? Be yeah, just go on. Like, you see that house, just draw that. And that's architecture. And I was like, no, I'm like, I don't think it's right. Me that got like a C in maths. And that was because I took the foundation paper. I was like, that's, I'm not, I'm not in any way going to attempt architecture or anything like that requires any kind of technical thinking because I'm not that way inclined but they were very very much just like just do what you want and I was like I think I should do law because I remember my dad used to say all the time that he reckoned I'd be good at it because I was argumentative and that was quite literally my basis for going like studying law I was like oh well my dad says I'm good at arguing so I'm gonna go and do it obviously I got there and it was like all latin and all like actual case law and I was like I don't understand what I'm doing but I remember even after I realised that I was very rubbish at law, I was still very like fixated on the corporate world and like, gosh, I need to go and work at Deloitte or PwC because, and again, it's that thing of the second generation like immigrant mentality that not just comes from, I think people see it as like, oh, your parents just want you to be a doctor, an engineer or lawyer so they can boast. I think a lot of it also comes from like a scarcity mindset and financial financial concern. Exactly. Like my parents were laid back, but they also did want me to be financially stable because it's not you know the creative industries there's a reason that it's you know completely permeated with people that are super middle class and have the bank of mom and dad to lean on because when you don't it's very difficult to take unpaid internships so I was like I want I want money and it sounds dirty to say but I think having not grown up with much of it right exactly when you've had like bailiffs at your door you kind of don't want them to be there again so you're like okay I want to be stable so for me I was like law I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that because I'm not good at it but I will go try and apply for things at Barclays and try to apply for things at like wherever else and obviously I, I was still rubbish at those things and didn't I wasn't successful but it was yeah I think it was really me defining success in very rigid terms because when I was at ACS everybody was super corporate being creative was kind of seen as this like side hustle thing before the word was even really thrown about and it just wasn't seen as a serious thing and it also wasn't seen as a viable thing and it wasn't really seen as a thing that you could do like lucratively or well so I was defining my success in those times yeah and, and when you talk about that because that's really interesting this idea of of yeah what expectations of success that's quite a turnaround then that you went from really wanting that to 
realigning, I guess, your expectations of what success could look like and also being okay with you know freelance journalism is not it's not a lucrative career like no it's not (laughs) did that come from having that having that time at the end of your second year when you you left for a bit was that when you just sort of had the the change of mind oh you know what that's such a good question I don't know if I ever became you know what I'm gonna be so honest I don't know if I ever became okay with the idea of not being financially stable I don't know if I did I think it's more like your typical Nigerian person I just thought if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be stable and I have to be successful at it. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. That is honestly the reality. Like, I always say that I'm not an ambitious person and no one believes me when I say that. I was not a wildly ambitious person. Like, anyone who knows me from uni, though, would absolutely agree. Like, I don't think anyone had any expectations that me and Elizabeth would then go on and write this book and do this stuff. But I think it really came from need. Like, it came from a need for that book to exist. But also, like, we can't just do this as a craft project like we have to as much as I am the queen of saying that you know hobbies are crucial and people need to learn to do things not just for financial value but that being said when we were like we're gonna write this book it came from a place of we're gonna write this but we also have to be able to like we've got jobs so we have to be able to make this lucrative if we're gonna then leave our jobs to 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 follow this path and I feel like when it came to me even deciding to take journalism seriously I absolutely categorically had a backup plan I was like okay, law hasn't worked out. Okay, you know, I'm not going to work at like Barclays as whatever the hell I was applying for. I can't even remember what it was, but like, I remember like sort of being like, okay, so I am going to go into journalism, but I literally remember having some sort of like timeline of being like, if I am not able to get a London living wage paid role by this point of graduation, then I'm not going to do it. Because I was like, I don't, it's just not a luxury. And I think everyone's, experiences are very different but for me I was like in in another life I was like god I would have really loved to be a teacher like I love kids and I love talking (laughs) so I was like yeah I think I'd I think I'd be a really good teacher I'd I'd really enjoy it and I remember I was very much like you know if this doesn't work out I'd more than happily be a teacher because I think again speaking about how we define success like I am somebody who's always had a big part of my life that isn't connected to my work uh, which is art and I've always loved it and I feel like I was very comfortable with the idea of being like, mm, if I can't write full time, I could I could write on the side. I'd be more than happy to do it as a, you know, a thing that I just love doing. So yeah, I don't know if I ever really accepted the, I really did feel like, gosh, I have to do this like at 110% and I have to completely smash it because I can't afford to not, because then it means that if I could sort of be more financially stable doing something else that maybe I don't want to do as much, but I can balance like my passions. My pa- I don't believe my passion and my job have to be exactly the same thing. I think I'm honestly very privileged to be able to have that. And I wake up every day and I'm very thankful for it because I don't think it has to be. And I think it's, I'm very blessed that that's the case, but I was fully prepared to do something, something else. Um, I think okay. it was just at that point when I was at uni that I realised I was going to go full throttle more when I left rather um, that in that year out. So I want to, and I'm very reluctant to kind of, to sort of focus on the kind of ambition thing as though it's in any way a dirty word. No, I feel as though men would maybe not get this thrown at them. But I feel like you do have, at the end of your second year at university, you you took a year out, is that right? And you ended up setting, you're applying for work experience in internships you ended up setting up your own magazine yeah and when I first heard this I kind of thought oh maybe she did like a website or something you you made a proper magazine like yeah. a 72 page birthday magazine so you do have some sort of 
drive things. Yeah, oh, I'm absolutely driven. You're 100% right. Like, and I think it's just so interesting when it's nature versus nurture, because I think I'm completely almost driven by nurture like so i've always said to my friend that like there is another yomi in an alternate universe that is like on a chaise lounge like just being fed grapes by some like i don't even know like some really rich person man probably that like you know i'm married to and you know i don't know how we'd have the time to do that if he was super rich and out working and making all the money but i don't know that sounds super unfeminist but (laughs) but yeah like i'm just always saying that like there is a version of me that is so willing to just fall back and not be working all the time. Like I'm a workaholic, but it's truly out of necessity because I know like my mom, like I know one ever believes me when I say it, but I was characterized in the house as the lazy one. It was always like, oh my, my mom's one of the reasons we used to butt head so much is because she was like, you're so lazy. Like I was like lazy to my bones. Like it used to physically pain me to get up for school. And then I went to uni and anyone who knows me at uni will not like dispute this. I was like constantly just out getting completely smashed like and just that was what I did at uni and then it's like I like scrape I think in my first year I got a third in my second year I got a 2-2 and then somehow overall managed to scrape a 2-1 I do not actually understand how but I think it's because I did external modules so most people who really know me like external to my job like are very all my closest friends are like I cannot believe like they will send me things from Instagram but I can't believe this is you though because they know how I am and they're like (laughs) but then I think they also understand that like yeah like I am certainly driven and I'm certainly ambitious I think it's just come from a place of me being like I I really thought if I had different parents I feel like if I had a different upbringing things had slightly been easier I just don't know if I'd be like this and I don't I'm not complaining about it at all I'm very happy with how things have turned out but I don't know if it's a natural drive because for instance, as you said, I started up Birthday Magazine in 2012, but it was literally because I was like sending out like hundreds. I literally found like some of my old applications the other day because I was clearing up my inbox and one of them said, one of them was like, God, I wish I could remember the magazine. It was like a B2B magazine called like Gambling Monthly. And I was like, the fact I applied to this <laughs> just shows how like desperate I was to get my foot in the door. And, you know, it really was a case of, I didn't really want to start a publication. It was just I actually am trying to get a job in the media and it's not working. So I'm physically, and I think this is the case for so many like women, so many black women, so many people that are marginalized in some way. Like it's a necessity. I was like, wow, if I don't actually create this publication, my writing's not going to go out anywhere. So I kind of was like, Mm. I started a blog first and then it was like someone literally, I I think I've even mentioned before the way I decided to get into journalism was because a a random man that like um, I used to go to uni with, that I was talking to, we used to just randomly converse over facebook message for no reason and he just was like you do know you could get paid for your writing like it's literally journalism like it's opinion journalism and it just never occurred occurred to me that i could Mm -hmm. charge people for what i was doing for free and enjoying and then essentially the same thing happened with the magazine where my friend was like oh a lot of the writing that you do wouldn't go in mainstream publications like you could probably start something else like you know start your own thing and that's how it came about so yeah like 100% ambition for me is not a dirty word at all it's just that like there's some people who, if they won the lottery would work them they would still like be like I'm working I'm going to my nine to five still I'm enjoying or even not necessarily their nine to five but like if they love their work they're like I'd still do it for me I'm like yeah I'd probably write like the odd essay per <laughs> five years honestly I'd probably pay I'd probably just spend all my time painting like maybe writing some like you know navel gazing like accompanying essays with art and then that would be it because I think naturally I'm quite laid back but it's like survival. You don't have the choice to be, do you know what I mean? Laid back if you yeah. want to, you know, if you want to buy a flat up the road. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I'm really interested in this. And I'm, I 
we're going to have to zoom forward because this is about how to be sad. And I think yeah. you <laughs> captured really interestingly. Well, you are also in your, all of your work, you kind of capture joy as well, which I think is really mm. important to emphasize in, in Loud Black Girls and Slay in Your Lane. But you mentioned Elizabeth, and I want to talk about female friendship and mm. how I'm maybe having two sisters already. You had that, those really close bonds. But, you know, I have a theory about this idea that like the buddy system, that if we have trusted friends, we can talk things through. We can kind of, it's kind of a superpower and we can kind yes. of get through lots of things. But I'd love to kind of zoom forward a bit to, I guess you, you did end up with a stable job. You're working at Channel 4 and you had all these ideas and you could see a lot of these injustices around you and how difficult it had been to get work experience. Mm. Can you talk us through a little bit about how you and Elizabeth came up with Slay in Your Lane? It's so interesting when it comes to like, yeah, like look at like when I kind of look backwards and I look at like the work that I was doing at like ITN and like Channel 4 and then obviously when we decided to do Slaying Elaine in like gosh, 2015, I think. So a full, like nearly six years ago, because it was, I think it was March 2015 that Elizabeth called me and was like, I've had this idea, do you want to do, do it essentially? Back when I was writing, and God, it feels like so long ago, but when I first started writing on the internet, probably like 2011, it was so, like, so wow, nearly a full 10 years ago, it was like a completely different climate. Like, I feel like now it's very much, I don't think people realise when it's like in the early days of like getting commissioned by the Independent or the Guardian to put your opinion out there about something, like what it was like. Like you still will get the odd like trolls and the odd like, comment section that you're not going to look at but I feel like back then it was like people weren't even really commissioning pieces to talk about these things so when you did talk about these things you're this lone person that was kind of like by the way this is racist and it's just like all of it just came to you and back then you weren't building a platform off of this these conversations it's been very interesting to see how things have changed because you really didn't it was just like you're saying something honestly to your detriment and now it's like but because it was so important for you to talk about like you know, it's, it's very much changed um, because especially even more intensely after, and you know, the tragic murder of George Floyd, things have definitely sort of changed in the way that we're having these conversations, which I think is, is, is super important. And also how we are treating the people that are, are having those conversations. So I think I've always been somebody that's like, like to, I guess for me, it's like, just talk about things that I'm, I'm obviously black. So it's like, you know, I was talking about things that I guess to me wouldn't feel particularly groundbreaking because I was just like, I'm a black person. So of course this is part of my experience. And for Elizabeth, it was like, she'd been reading all these books that were like, you know, she was in the corporate world. She, she'd gone and essentially done what I was trying to do, but wasn't naturally sort of cut out for. And like, you know, we worked in these two completely different industries and I guess I kind of thought, okay, I've gone down the creative route. It's going to be completely different. And it's like, oh no, we're experiencing either the same hurdles or just different ones, but still hurdles despite us being in completely different industries. It was interesting. So for instance, I'd be like able to wear my hair in an Afro at work. And that was seen as really radical to her. But then it's like, I'd also have people like, you know, flippantly using the N-word in the office, like in a colloquial sense. And that was just something she could not even get her head around. Cause she was just like, obviously because of the way the corporate world is like, you know, it'd be straight to HR. It's a very different like thing. So, so she'd been reading all this stuff and just felt like, you know, she'd been reading like Girl Boss by Sophia Maruso, Thrive by Ariana Huffington and uh, Lean In was the big one by Sheryl Sandberg. And she kind of was like, these all talk about what it is to be like a woman, but there's like a real elephant in the room, which is about the fact that I'm a black woman and there are just so many things like, I mean, Lean In gets a really bad rap, but like, she really was just like, at the end of the day, there was nothing then. And and she still saw herself in part of it. She just didn't see all, her, all of herself. So she was like, oh my God, I've had this idea. Someone should write that type of book. You are a writer. Do you want to write it? And I was like, well it's a great idea, but not really because I don't know anything. So it was like, yeah, we're going to teach them how to kill it. And I was like, 
I don't know how to kill it. Do you know how to kill it? And she's like, I don't know how to kill it either. So we're both just like, uh. And then we're like, oh, okay, let's find, you know, as you mentioned before, 39 incredible black female trailblazers and ask them about what they've been doing and how they've been doing it. So yeah, I think like initially, like, I, I mean, in Birthday Magazine, I'd been writing about like black female identity and, and, and what it was to be a black woman. It was basically like a magazine aimed at like young black women and girls and it was you know I used to give it out in like the, the hair shops up my road and stuff and in Brixton and South Norwood and stuff and I guess with Slaying Elaine it was like an inadvertent continuation that didn't like come from me because it was Elizabeth's idea but just that wanting to see your story accurately told somewhere else and I think yeah that the point that you meant in terms of sisterhood and friendship is super crucial because like Elizabeth was literally fully gonna just give me the idea she was literally just like do you want to write it? Because she saw something in me and then, but then I saw something in her in turn and was like, well, you you can write really well as well. And also like, you've got a marketing eye, we could make this something bigger. And you might've noticed that like, you know, the book's like fully dedicated to my sisters. I can't, I was literally sitting there thinking like, wow, any books I write in the future, I cannot imagine like dedicating it to like anyone else. Cause like, they're literally my best friends. Like they've been oh. my life. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really close. To, <laughs> I'm really close to them. And it's funny because people have always kind of been like, not surprised, but I don't think it, I realised when I was a lot older how not everybody's best friends are oh, their siblings. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of people's are. But like what, like when I hear about like, you know, estrangement and people being like, oh, I don't talk to my siblings, especially, it always really hurts me because it's like, I don't know what I do without my sisters. Like we are very close. Your big sister is a journalist for BBC. She is, BBC Africa, yeah. And um, what does your little sister do? My little sister's currently working at a charity called Their World, um, which oh. is an education, a global education charity which, God, life is so random. It's literally because I once did a podcast with Sarah Brown, Gordon Brown's wife, and she, literally just on a whim, I kind of mentioned like, oh, my sister's, you know, a, she's graduated and she's looking for a role. And, and then she was like, oh, well, in fact, I'm, you know, I, I had this charity and blah, blah. And I was like, wow, and that's literally how she got a job. <laughs> so now anytime my mum sees Gordon Brown on the news, she's just like, oh, there he is, our hero. I'm like, it was actually his wife. <laughs> Old GB. Right? (laughs) Your sister had some, your big sister had, I think I've read you saying that you saw challenges that she faced going into journalism, even though she'd kind of already, as you say, blazed that trail. But of course, everyone faces their own hurdles. Was that off putting? Was that anything that you worried about? It was like horrendous. So I think I'm a pretty nice person, right? But I always say I'm like the bad one out of my sisters, which I always say says a lot about my sisters because it just shows how lovely they both are. Because I'm like, I'm pretty decent, but like, they are just like lovely girls, like genuinely good girls. My older sister is like, even though she's always been like a third parent, you know, she's six years older than me. She's very protective. <laughs> like, I almost can't tell her anything because she's just like, like, <laughs> she's just very like, what's this tweet about? What are you doing here? You know, because she's like, just like another mum. But like, it's also works the other way where I'm almost very protective of her because she's just so genuinely lovely. And seeing her navigate an industry that was just so, especially because I look at like things I've gone through in certain industries and I am quite, as much as I think I'm like nice, I, I definitely have a certain level of like grit. And so does my, my sister absolutely does. But she's just such a nice girl that like, I can't even, but I think about the fact that, you know, she was in her early twenties and there were times where, you know, by the time I got into journalism, it was like, maybe I was one of, two black people in the office and the other one was probably an intern or an apprentice but at least they're there whereas my sister was like fully like the only person the only state educated person I remember she told me about going to a newsroom and she was like eating McDonald's once and like she loves a Big Mac she loves a double cheeseburger and like everyone just like just in the it's why I'm saying class is such an interesting thing because like everyone was sat, sort of sat there with their like quinoa and their like pomegranate like yogurt or whatever and she was like sat there like eating this Big Mac and 
I mean, everybody loves McDonald's, I think, <laughs> but it was, she just said that she just felt super acutely aware of like in that space that wasn't something she was supposed to do. And she just felt really common. And there were so many horrible things that happened. Like she had a byline stole, stolen at a publication. I didn't even know, like, I remember like I had no understanding really of how journalism worked, but like she'd work, worked really hard on a story and then they gave the byline to someone else. And I remember just sitting there thinking like, because I had this anecdote from when I was like eight and one time like I entered this drawing competition and someone, what's the word, scribbled out my name and wrote <gasps> their name. <gasps> it was crazy. And then they won it. And in the middle of the assembly, I was like, that's my drawing. They had to like swap us out. And I was like, okay, in my it's like, like I don't movie. know. It was ridiculous. But I was like, in my 15 year old brain, I was thinking, that's just that. Like, how can you, how can they just like, change your but and obviously she was like I was like it can't just give your byline to someone else surely like this is a matter for the police and it's like no that stuff really just happens because she's kind of like young and you know easy to manipulate and it really was off-putting I nearly didn't I I, I re it really definitely made me think about what I wanted to do and whether I was cut out for it because there's a level of I think wiliness and just underhandedness at times that's needed to navigate certain industries and I was like I don't want to be like that and I think it's why being freelance has been so amazing because you kind of almost are external to it but yeah it was very hard to see yeah very awful to see her suffer like that it was horrible. I think as well though you and Elizabeth have changed the landscape in a little way you know thinking about that being something that you're looking at when you're starting out in that career to writing Slay in Your Lane and packing it with so much data and I love things that you've said about that that you were defending yourself against the idea that was anything in it was anecdotal you're like no yeah. these are the stats this, everything is backed up but then after the success of Slay in Your Lane it was an event to celebrate the publication that the idea for Loud Black Girls came out didn't it? Yeah essentially yeah so yeah, it's crazy like yeah it was at a gosh a brunch that we held for influencers and what's the word um supporters of the book and just other authors and it was lovely and we we're on this like private members club or something and we were just you know we'd had this sort of brunch in a separated room and then we'd sort of been like oh let's take it out in the lobby and lots of people were in the lobby chatting as you do at these clubs and we'd taken the champagne that we paid for from the room and brought it out to the lobby and we're having a drink having a chat and someone sort of came over and was like oh can you guys like keep it down slightly and the thing is like to me that's totally fine had like there literally not been just a gaggle of like how many different like white groups just talking at the exact same decibels as us so it was very 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 frustrating and yeah essentially we were like I think Slaying Alone was very much about the present and past and very much about where we'd come from and where there was to go and I think one thing that was very important for us was to like really pay homage to the people that have because I think I complain about this so much like, and it really makes me sound like such a grandmother, but there's a millennial fixation with being like, oh, I'm the first person to do this and no one else was doing this before. And we don't really take the time often to look back and sort of just give the credit to the people that like have meant that we can have these conversations. So it was very important for us to like pay homage and say like, this person did this and this person did that. We're re really happy with that. And, you know, talking about what was going on now, but I think with Loud Black Girls, we wanted it to be a bit more forward looking and about like platforming voices and looking at the conversations that people are having now, which I think it did. I'm very biased because obviously we curated it, but I think like the voices in there are just like singular. Everyone, we were kind of concerned like, gosh, when you commission 
black female voices i think a lot of black female writers are often commissioned off the back of an event so it's like beyonce's dropped an album or this was racist so we were like it's reactive reactive, right so we were like we don't want people to like feel like they have to send us something on hair discrimination or colorism or but everyone sent us something completely different which was incredible and just speaks to the diversity within diversity of um the of the black female experience yeah i love the essay about um about shyness and this this idea that, Charlie yes everyone loves everyone like really picks Charlie's out it was fantastic yeah <laughs> just because I, I just think that's such a it's such of course by its very nature it's such a sort of a quiet sort of people who experience that are not going to shout loudly and complain about it but of Absolutely. course that is something that will be, bring people a lot of unease and discomfort and yeah and when, when I'm really interested as well you've you've written kind of really movingly after the murder of George Floyd about the requirement to perform anger and activism and Mm. when we spoke for how to be sad you talked about i guess on the back of slay in your lane there have been lots of studies that black women are not allowed to bring their whole selves to the workplace for example or that uh, you are not kind of allowed to i think you wrote restraint is your reality Mm. that you know fallibility is is a luxury in that way yeah absolutely i'm really interested how you feel about that now because i mean that just seemed profoundly sad but that's probably with the naivety of being someone who mm. was very much educated by your book because it's not an experience I've lived through. It just seems so sad. How, how do you feel about that now? Oh, gosh, it's just it's so... There's just so many layers and levels to it, I think. So, like, when it comes to the idea of, like, performing anger and grief and activism, it's something that just really does not sit well with me at all because I feel like at this point... I mean, I don't even know if it's at this point, but, like, I should not have to sit here and tweet about the fact that like I am traumatized and pained by yet another mindless senseless murder at the hands of police in the states I don't know why it would be assumed I wasn't as a black person that also on top of that what really frustrates me is like the internet is so arbitrary because Betty Majinga a you know TFL worker died because somebody spat at her at, you know, I think she was working at Victoria Station. Someone spat at her and, you know, she caught coronavirus and she died. Same thing happened to a taxi driver called Stephen Bell. And, you know, he someone got in his car, spat at him and he died, a black man. And these were all, tra- like, this is the thing. All of these travesties, travesties that are race-based or more likely to happen to black people, because that's the thing. Like, when we look at black people more likely to die of coronavirus, again, class issue. Like, it's not primarily just going to be black people that are like working remotely it's black people that are working on the front lines it's key workers it's black people that are working in the nhs it's black people that are working um for transport for london and to me it's like the idea that because lots of white people had finally sort of got the message around george floyd that then everybody in unison black people that have been speaking about this for years forever for their entire lives are then supposed to also come along on that journey, inverted commas, and also start performing grief was just bizarre to me. I think the internet in terms of the way it, I mean, I wrote a similar piece actually years ago about the very tragic death of Mike from Love Island. He committed suicide. It was horrible. I'm a big Love Island fan. I really liked him. It was really just sad to see. But what was sadder was the fact that Megan McKenna, his ex-girlfriend, who I think, you know, she's a reality TV star as well, was being hounded to show, like, to, to release a statement, to to explain the fact yeah. that she was sad. I think something similar might have happened to, like, I mean, I don't know if it happened or maybe she was preempting it, but when Kobe Bryant 
tragically passed his wife released a statement like within days and i just sat there thinking jesus christ i'll never forget like so i had a really severe like you know traumatic experience happen in 2014 and i just went offline for like a year and then sometimes people bring it up to me like god do you remember that year you just disappeared offline i'm like yeah yeah i remember i know exactly why i did and I would never explain it. I never will, unless I feel moved to. And it scares me that people felt that that grief was owed. And I think even external to a race, I, it's complicated because I understand it when people want white people or non-black people to show that they care because they feel that if they can't see it, it's not happening. But what's dangerous about that is then I am much more comforted by, by knowing that there are people that are doing things and the idea that like a white person tweeting like god this is awful here's a screenshot of my donation is allyship or solidarity worries me not even just because the the core of white's being done that the incentive is performative and and to sate people from basically calling them racist because at the end of the day if that still results in donations you know maybe it's a, it's a net good but it's the fact that like in terms of long-term change I don't want, I don't know. I Something just doesn't sit right with me with that. I feel like you were nearly there. I feel like, yeah. Well, <laughs> so I was raised Catholic and I am not religious anymore, but there's something that we were always, you know, that you do the good thing, but you don't tell people about the good thing. Oh my Is gosh. Is it that? Is oh that my it? gosh. So I, so I was raised Christian. Um, I don't know what I am anymore, to be honest. I don't know. I believe in something, but God knows what. And I think that for me, like, I think for me, one of my favourite things about when George Michael passed was just, the dilute, oh. deluge of just news about what an amazing person he was. Like, I'll actually get emotional thinking about it because it just, yeah, me too. it moved me so much. Like, it was incredible. And I think, I remember there was a, sometimes I feel like I'm losing my mind. Like, I remember there was a period where it was just like, I was online and it was just back to back, like screenshots of donations. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I was trying to get to the nub of why it was bothering me. But then I guess it was like, I flipped it and thought, why? Like, if someone could provide me any kind of just rationale as to why that's something that needs to be done. And I remember then people, because it's Twitter, of course, it's like the, the, the think pieces and the theory starts. So someone said something like, well, you need to see other people donate. Otherwise, you know, it's an, it incentivizes other people. And I just, I just wasn't sure. I just was not sure. I truly felt like, especially, I guess, growing up in a time where it was like, there's been this like earthquake in this place and Britain has donated a hundred billion, whatever. And it's like, oh, Britain always donates the most. And so many, so much was donated from this thing. And it was like, the incentive was suffering. The incentive was people were being hurt and were destitute and people still donated. So for me, it just never felt like that was where it was coming from. It felt like a kind of like a need that was to say, not those in need, but to ensure that you aren't accused of not caring. And it's, and I remember I saw this tweet, but I cannot remember who it was, but I remember seeing this incredible tweet. I feel like th there is a, there is a tweeter called, a writer called Aisha Akambi, and I feel like it was her, and I'm not going to say it as eloquent as she did say it, but it was like, how are you going to have a go at people for not showing like distress and, and fatigue and genuine pain at this instance, when we are 364 days of the year, completely blind to the suffering that is going on in like say the global south 24 7 and I was like that is it because it's like I'm Nigerian when Ensals was happening as a Nigerian person it's like Jesus Christ my sister's a reporter she's on the ground it was a very a very distressing time I was like of course I care whether I'm going on Instagram and saying I care like I, I don't know it's just interesting how the internet picks its calls for the day and if it's not your cause 
you don't have any causes. Or if it's your cause, but you're not talking about it, then you don't care. I'm not saying this as eloquently as I'd like to, but I just think it's more complex than, wow, tick, good white person, pat on the head because you tweeted about George Floyd. Because then, of course, when I, I actually genuinely was so confused during that period because people were shouting at people for not posting black squares, then shouting at people for posting black squares, saying it was reductive, then being like, look, here are all these anti-racist books you can read to not be racist anymore. Then saying that those books didn't work. And I just thought this isn't, it just felt to me wrong, all of it. And I felt like black people were getting caught in like the crosshairs where people were saying, oh my God, J. Cole doesn't care about this because he's not tweeted anything. And then I see a picture of him literally marching like in a protest. And I'm like, guys, this is so wrong. And I'm certain we'll look back on this in like a few years time and be like, since when was social media, like, For me, social media has never been real life. I think that's my bugbear here. Like majority of my real life, I have a a complicated life that I guarantee no one is privy to because why would I put it online? I don't know you people. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So I think- I think it's it's really interesting. You've got the kind of the political and the professional and the personal. Absolutely. And I guess I find that so fascinating because I'm kind of trying to do a rallying call for people to express their emotions more, but- you're quite right that it shouldn't have to be a performance. And yes. I love something you said about all of your social media is like a big LinkedIn. Oh my God, it's just LinkedIn. I it's, like it's that, a, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a choice. And I think that is the point. You're 100% right. Like I actually genuinely, and I don't, I say it completely like with no facetiousness, people that come online and are able to like express themselves and reveal parts of themselves that then unlock the ability for other people to reveal themselves. I think they're crucial. I think they're like, a form of key worker. Like there are people that are out here that are like, I experienced this and it's making other people be like, well shit, I experienced this. Let's talk about it. And I commend them. Where I draw the line is that's everyone. No, like yeah. not everybody can do that and not everyone should do that. And for me, the only reason I have any brain cells left and like any shred of like mental health left is, has been because I decided a very long time ago, as you can hear from how I talk about my family, the most important thing in my life, my loved ones are all I care about on this planet. So therefore, that is a lot that is a line that's compartmentalized. That's for me. Other people don't like that's not how they want to, you know, use their platform online and they're more than happy and comfortable with that. And I think that is completely fair. What I hate is that the political, for instance, for me, like, you know, I've always come online and spoken about certain issues. And other people don't. And I think it's so weird as well, fixation with like okay, maybe you want a response from me on NSARS. I mean, why not? I'm Nigerian. Like, do you know what I mean? I'm I'm political. But then it's like, oh, where's Ariana Grande? Talk about it. I mean, she can, and it'd be great if she could, but why are we so obsessed with celebrities? Like, why are we, why aren't we looking for act to leaders and actual activists and actual people? Like, platforms matter, sure, but it scares me that it's like, oh my God, Miley Cyrus hasn't tweeted about this atrocity, therefore, I'm like... I just don't know when celebrities and just online personalities begun to take that function. Yeah. And perhaps this is not something you want to answer, but are you presumably then comfortable talking about this like with your family and with your friends? Like are there do you just like to have barriers generally? Are there some boundaries with your close friends or is it just a it's a just different ball game when it's there? Oh, it's a free-for-all. It's an absolute okay. free-for-all. Because I think <laughs> like I talk to my friends about everything, my family about everything, because I think as well, like we can just talk 
without judgment and there's an understanding mm. of like i think the thing that's scary about the internet as well is the pretense we all know everything so we'll become aware of like this one thing and it's like we'll then start shouting at someone else for like not knowing about that or not signal boosting that and i'm like you didn't know about this yesterday whereas with my family and my friends like it's just a complete level playing field everyone's open everyone's honest everybody and i think as well i can speak i remember i was voice noting my friend ortega a work brother author and i was telling her i was saying something to her and i was like it was <laughs> it was literally like the garble it was like had so much preamble and so much i'm not trying to say and i just mean and she was like yomi you're saying this and it's fine for you to say this because you're you i know you and i was actually embarrassed because like oh my god like i actually do because i've only just we only started really talking like very closely like last year during lockdown and I kind of still had this thing of like, I'm on Twitter and I'm contextualizing my thoughts. And she was just like, I know you well enough to know that like, this is what you're saying. And I think, I think my fear online is there are so few good faith actors. There is so much bad faith on there that the idea that we should have these complicated, and I think it goes for like, I don't know, like there are so many people that post things and I'm like so grateful. Cause I'm like, oh, thank God you can do this. Cause I can't. And you've just completely articulated this experience that I had and this confusion that I had. But I'm like, when that becomes like, everybody must do this, otherwise they're like bad people or they're inauthentic. I'm like very openly and happily inauthentic online. I say it all the time because I'm a very authentic person offline. So I'm like, oh yeah, there's this whole universe where I'm like completely fake and everything's completely fine. And like, you know, all I do is buy expensive bags and go to glamorous events but that's not my real life but i'm so fine for that for people to be like oh my god you do buy nice bags oh my god i love a good bag (laughs) but but do you also and i i wonder whether you also kind of see the interest in the people who who read your books and read your work and listen to your podcast there is a nosy you know we get into this profession because we are well i'm nosy i just like to find out about people so if people, you know, especially like young black women looking up to you who will want to know how you cope and you share a lot in your work, but is that the line? Like, are there are there things that you've learned with your experience now, you know, when you're having a really bad day, for example, of the things that you would do to pick yourself up? Or is that another level that you'd really just keep for your friends? Oh, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I think for me, I don't like to, I don't even update my Insta stories in real time. So I will literally be uploading pictures from like a week ago and I'm like oh my god look at this sunset and it's like a whole week has passed because I don't know I guess it's like Nigerian superstition like my mum never likes my mum doesn't even take the same route home like two days in a row like she's just very cautious so for me I'm just like I'm not I don't need you to know exactly where I am at any time anyway like in life geographically do I need people to know exactly where I'm at in any time even mentally probably not but that being said like I'm more than happy often to talk about things when the moment's passed so I mean, I was very cautious about whether I was going to talk about mental health in staying alone because I was like, do I really want to open that can of worms? And I really was like, you know, if this honestly helps a single person, then there is value in that. But there are probably, if I'm being honest, other things I could say that could help a single person, but I'm not there yet to to, to share those things. I'm more comfortable sharing those things often when the moment has passed. Because as I said, like, I see people share things. Chrissy Teigen shared an image of the fact she had a miscarriage and was trolled. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to pretend that the internet, like the internet is filled with people. And we also like simultaneously understand that people like go around mugging people, go around stabbing people, go around throwing acid in their faces. Like we know, we take these precautions in real life and we understand that like people, not everyone in the world is sunshine and buttercups and I was about to say cornflakes. Like that's like a nice, I mean, the cornflakes are quite <laughs> I mean, nice. I mean, they're but, nice yeah, too. They are nice. <laughs> but yeah, um, I just think I like to take those precautions because I 
it's the same people filling this scary ass world that are filling the internet. They're the same people that, you know, she's got a lot of love, she's got a lot of solidarity, she also got a lot of trolling. I'm like, that is not a space where I'm gonna, in real time, until I'm 100% sure I can take whatever like shit is thrown at me, I'm not gonna share. I don't know, like, like I just, I'm just very cautious of it. And I honestly take the precautions that I take in the real world when I'm trying to avoid like being robbed or something. And I'm just like, yep, yeah, there's yeah. a line here. I, it's weird, I feel more com comfortable, honestly, speaking to a cab driver about like, oh my God, I've had a terrible day. Then like, and I do that quite frequently, then going online and being like, yeah, this happened. Because as I said, like, I just, unless I'm like 100% sure that that moment has passed and I'm there and I can talk about it. Like, it sounds strange. Like, I remember I wrote a piece about the fact that me and an ex are like, best friends like one of my exes is like my I, i'm friends with like i think 90 percent of my exes very close to them um or cool with them at least but this one is like my bestie and you know it's not weird to me it's not weird to my friends no one cares but we were together shorter than we've been friends now so that like you know it, it feels even like a weird formality to say he's my ex-boyfriend but like i can talk about that because now the length of time we've been broken up is longer than when we were together so i don't I don't care about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. You have your own, yeah, internal kind of guidelines about it. Yeah, exactly. Because, but in the, I don't know, if we'd have been a week broken up, maybe I'd have been like, oh, I'm not going to talk about this. Even though we were, as I said, all my friends, my mum, like he's been helping my sister, like advise her for her job and stuff. Like my older sister loves him. We're all like really close to him and stuff. But I just thought, I know people think will think it's weird. I don't, I'm not, I don't care too much what people think, but I thought I don't want that dissection yet and then like a couple of years later i was like oh i don't mind it now it can come but yeah in real time i just think it's just different yeah okay you are very wise i think you Thank should you, life coach girl. everybody um what would you wish you could tell your 21 year old self now with all that you've learned and all that you know now 21 year old self let me really get mm. so i've literally just graduated so actually no i i graduated no yeah i, I can't remember now because i'm like i took a year out i graduated 21 or 22 i would tell her that honestly she's she's doing all right man honestly like i i think she really had like her head screwed on and i i really liked like 21 year old me she she saw that she wasn't like having a great time at uni she was finding things difficult she was suffering from depression so she left she took a year out she thought about herself and she prioritized herself and you know she was i think yeah like i think she had a level of confidence that I think, honestly, I sometimes am envious of my own self because I'm like, wow, like young me really just believed in herself. And I'm like, would I start like a random magazine now? Probably not. But I did when I was like 20. So yeah, I tell her to keep pushing. I always say that. Like I honestly would just tell her to keep going because I don't think I changed a thing about her. She could probably eat more. I was so skinny. But other than that, like <laughs> she, she was all right. She was all right. I think that's lovely. Thank you so much, Yomi. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care. <laughs>